Welcome back to the Old History Podcast. You're part of the Old History Project, where the goal is to just talk about history. Maybe somebody will learn something somewhere. You guys have heard it a thousand times by now. So, this is going to be a pretty odd thing. It's going to be, a, I guess, maybe a Monday. I think I'll record, have this to upload Monday. It'll be a Monday podcast. Something for Monday. I don't normally do that. I don't normally just do the one a week, but... Uh, February is Black History Month, and, well, all history is history, and something I wanted to talk about, I talked about it before, was the Clinton 12, the story of the Clinton 12 and the Clinton High School bombing, so that's what today's subject's going to be about. Before we get into the podcast, uh, if you want to support your favorite internet historian, you can do so here on Anchor, you can subscribe to the podcast for like a dollar a month don't have to to listen it's free to listen so outside of that there are no updates for the channel uh, I did take that uh, picture of that creepy haunted house out in uh, Rogersville so hope you guys seen that all right so let's take a quick break here and we'll get right in Alright, so this is going to be read from the Tennessee Encyclopedia Net and TNForMe.org. Um, I'm going to talk about the Clinton 12 first and this series of events that led up to it. And uh, this is the, on the Tennessee Encyclopedia website. This was written by Dr. Carol Van West, a state historian. So, let's dive right in. So, and I'm just reading this from the website. You guys can read it yourself. Uh, so a series of events from 1947 to 1958 would place the civil rights story of Clinton, which was the seat of Anderson County, on the national stage as one of the starting points in the modern civil rights movement. So at the end of World War II, local African-American citizens began to demand more equal school facilities, noting that their two-room two classroom building that had no cafeteria, no gym, no indoor restrooms, and no high school classes. And that's all true statements, and uh, I'll share a bunch of pictures uh, from that show a lot of the schools. Some of them are, were noted African-American uh, black schools. And honestly, you know, they were in worse shape than some of the similar one-room schools that the white people built. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, both parties, I'm not trying to undermine one or the other, both parties had it rough, and you guys know all about that. So... In reaction, local officials approved the ex expansion uh, to Clinton Colored School, adding a cafeteria rest and restrooms. In uh, 1948, they also agreed to change uh, the school name to honor uh, local black resident Green McAdoo, uh, who was an Army veteran who had been one of the Buffalo soldiers in the late 19th century. Uh, in 1896, about 40 years of age, Green McAdoo returned home from the Army and was employed as a custodian at the Anderson County Courthouse for 25 years. African Americans challenged federal courts for the lack of black high school education in Anderson County. In 1950, four black youths were eligible to attend Clinton High School. Um, they attempted to enroll but were rejected by school officials. In 19, December 1950, a group of citizens filed a lawsuit, which became known as McSwain uh, versus County Board of Education, Anderson County, Tennessee. Uh, the lawsuit received its hearing on February 13, 1952, in the U.S. District Court of Knoxville. 
with Judge Robert Taylor presiding. The local citizens were represented by a powerful group of activists, African American attorneys Alexander Luby and Avon Williams of Nashville would gain fame from their role in the national civil rights struggle and student movement of the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, Carl McCowan, uh, I don't know where that came from, Carl Cowan of Knoxville was a locally respected African American attorney. Most important was the presence of Thurgood Marshall and uh, of the Legal Defense Fund of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. In New York City, Marshall's involvement signified that the NAACP uh, considered the Clinton proceedings to be of national significance and that the case had the potential to bring yet another building block to the NAACP's uh, patient legal strategy of, strategy of undermining segregation. In his ruling of April 1952, Judge Taylor denied the lawsuit and upheld the position of the county school board. Taylor rejected the argument, saying that it violated the separate but equal doctrine for the African Americans to attend school in another county. He was not convinced that African American families were terribly inconvenienced by separate schools. Two years later, the federal legal landscape changed completely when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, that segregation was inherently unequal and struck down the separate but equal doctrine. Two and a half weeks later, U.S. Court of Appeals, Sixth Circuit, reversed Taylor's 1952 ruling and returned McSwain uh, County Board of Education to the federal district courts for a new decision. The local government officials moved quickly to upgrade African-American school facilities to placate local uh, black families and to delay desegregation. They appointed a committee to develop an integration plan, which uh, delayed integration for the 1955 to 56 school year. And then in January 56, Judge Taylor ordered the school board to end segregation by the fall term of 1956. No public displays of outrage or attempts to stop the process took place in the summer of 56. Registration of 12 African American students took place without incident. And on August the 20th, the following weekend, however, white pro-segregationists arrived in Clinton and began to rally white citizens to join them in protest. Two days before classes began, John Casper, who was uh, executive secretary of the Seaboard White Citizens Council, arrived in the city and issued a call for mass meetings of pro-segregationists and the organization of picketeers. Uh, nevertheless, on Monday, August 26, 1956, the Clinton 12 would make uh, state and national history uh, by walking down Foley Hill from Green McAdoo School to attend classes in the high school. They were the first students to desegregate a state-supported high school and the first to do so in any, any southern state. And from what I've been reading, they were among the first in the nation. They, this was one year before the uh, Little Rock Nine would walk into Little Rock High School. Not to undermine that or anything, but. So the first day of integrated classes happened without any major incident, but the next day was filled with threats, violence, and large, agitated crowds, fired up by the, fired up by John Casper. The tension level escalated overnight, and on Wednesday, August 29, 1956, federal judge, federal judge Taylor issued a temporary restraining order, forbidding Casper and his followers from interfering with school integration. But yet Casper, that very day, addressed a cloud, 
a crowd of 1,000 to 1,500 people, bragging that the restraining order was meaningless and that the Brown decision was not the law of the land. Judge Taylor ordered federal marshals to arrest Casper for criminal contempt of court. On August the 30th, he gave Casper a one-year sentence. His aggressive action was a first in the implementation of the Brown v. Board of Education decision. A federal judge had ordered agents of the federal executive uh, to intercede in a local police manner, police matter to arrest and detain suspects accused of violating the federal order designed to allow desegregation to proceed uh, in an orderly manner. Taking Casper out of the picture didn't really do anything to calm the situation. Asa Carter, who was on the who was a white citizens council leader from Birmingham, Alabama, joined the protest effort in Clinton. Crowds at the courthouse continued to grow and reported reportedly reached 1500 people according to some estimates. Then on a very hot Labor Day weekend in September 1956, uh, full-scale rioting broke out. Cars were apparently turned over, windows were smashed, and uh, some of the black travelers who were uh, servicemen who had been coming through were very frightened. Youngsters and juvenile-minded adults had taken over the town, threatening to dynamite the mayor's house, the newspaper plant, and even the courthouse. The black residential community was also threatened by segregationists driving driving through, but this was reported only later when dynamite was thrown into the neighborhood. The small Clinton police force was overwhelmed and city officials asked Tennessee Governor Frank Clement, who was the governor at that time, for help. Other city residents formed a home guard to protect property and lives from the white mob until state assistance could arrive. With the arrival of approximately 600 guardsmen and their occupation of the town, the worst of the violence had ended. The use of the National Guard by Governor Clement was the first in the Civil Rights Movement. Was another first in the Civil Rights Movement. The National Guard stayed in Clinton for the rest of September to keep order. And we'll take a quick break here. Coffee break. For Governor Clement, uh, the Clinton request had been a moment of truth. Would the state's chief executive support the law of the land and a request from city officials, or would he refuse to activate the National Guard? Which was the situation that occurred in Little Rock, Arkansas the following year. Uh, Governor Clement activated the state highway patrolmen and the National Guard forces to maintain peace and keep the roads open in Clinton. Segregationists across Tennessee decried Clement's decision, but as news from Clinton received national and international attention, other Tennesseans would praise the governor's decision to intervene, which, looking back on it now, we can say that was the right decision. So that fall, segregationists continued to engage in intimidation tactics. Crosses were burned on the lawns of some of the high school faculty members, as well as some of the homes of civic leaders who supported integration. Other incidents included rock throwing and threatening phone calls. As Intimidation escalated. Shots were fired at the home of two black students who were attending Clinton High School, and dynamite blasts punctuated the peace of the county. Casper would return to Clinton in November and organize a junior junior white citizens council comprised mostly of high school students. Tensions would continue in spite of the state's in spite of the state's intervention, especially one of once a slate of pro segregationists challenged the city incumbents to in a municipal elections. 
The segregation of the school was main was the main and really the only issue. Harassment and threats escalated against the African American children. Their property and their institutions to the point that the black parents met at Green McAdoo School and that decided that they could no longer send their children to the white school. Then, in a amazing turn of events, Baptist uh, minister, Reverend Paul Turner, pastor of the First Baptist Church, and others escorted the black students to Clinton High School on December 4, 1956, the day of municipal elections. That morning, Reverend Paul Turner of the, of the Baptist Church, along with Sidney Davis and Leo Burnett, met at the high school's met the high school students at Green McAdoo School and escorted them back down Foley Hill to the White High School, creating in effect a human shield to protect and reassure black students. Once the three white leaders left the school, left the students at the school, they went their separate ways and a white mob severely beat Reverend Turner on his way back to the First Baptist Church. In reaction to, uh, to the attack on Turner, and other threatened violence, Principal David Britton closed the high school and did not reopen it until December 10th, during which time federal judge Robert Taylor again reaffirmed his court injunction forbidding anyone from interfering with the integration process. In December 56 and January 57, national news journalists were in Clinton recording the events and interviewing local residents. This is where uh, CBS TV's Edward Morrow uh, produced one of his famous See It Now programs on Clinton, titled Clinton and the Law. The process of desegregation in Clinton became national and international news throughout the spring of 1957. Attention often focused on Bobby Kane, a senior, who would be the first African American to graduate a white public high school since in the South since Jim Crow. On May 17, 1957, exactly three years after Brown v. Board of Education, Bobby Kane graduated from the Clinton High School and became the first African-American graduate of a state-supported integrated high school, not only in Tennessee but also in the South. The following spring in 1958, Gail Ann Epps became the first African-American female to graduate from a public integrated high school in Tennessee. And this is where we get into the Clinton High School bombing. Uh, on October 5th, 1958, Clinton High School was bombed and most of the school was destroyed. And this this is really, really cool. And I didn't know this up until I started reading about uh, Clinton, Tennessee. Billy Graham, um, everybody knows who Billy Graham is. Drew Pearson and a few other famous people. And a lot of the locals, a lot of the citizens, uh, came together and raised a, a lot of money and had the school rebuilt. So there apparently um, was a hundred sticks of dynamite put inside the school. It was destroyed overnight and um, nobody ever knew who did it. There was never any arrest made. Uh, it's thought that it was John Casper. It's, it's thought that it was uh, somebody who lost the election. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, never did find out who it was. Still haven't to this day. So the desegregation of Clinton High School was not replicated at the city's primary grammar school for African Americans. Not until 1965, with the Green McAdoo School in its days as, as a segregated blacks-only institution. Finally, in that year, a 10-year struggle to desegregate 
public education in Clinton and Anderson County was over. And so again, that was read from uh, that was written by Dr. Van West. Full credit to him. And so looking back on that, um, I asked my grandmother one time. I said, "Mama, what? How was your family during all that time?" She said, "Well, to be quite honest with you, we we didn't see color." There was a black family, the Smiths, that lived right down the road, and they made the best pies, and we invited them over for dinner. And she said, well, and all of us kids, brothers and sisters, would go over there, and she'd have pies and cakes and snacks for us all the time. They were nice people. You know, and something I can say is, looking back, a lot of the people here, you know, they were just poor, and they just really just wanted to have a good time. They didn't see color. Some people did, unfortunately, um, but for the most part, Tennesseans have always been that way. You know, I've talked to even uh, other members of my family on the other side. They said the same thing. They said growing up during that time, they they didn't see color as an issue. So again, cultural history doesn't get into uh, a lot of modern politics. Just I don't want to bring that into an argument, you know. But I don't want to just make it into the modern politics or anything like that but this is stuff that needs to be talked about and there's all kinds of this stuff that happened all over Tennessee so we'll end the podcast here uh, so if you made it this far again you can subscribe to the podcast so thanks for listening and we'll catch you guys next weekend